Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm David Knowles and this is Ukraine, the latest Today, we bring you updates from across Ukraine analysis of recent changes in President Zelensky's cabinet And we discuss the surprise visit of the Prince of Wales to Poland, where he met the Polish president and Ukrainian refugees. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 24th of March, one year and 28 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, our royal correspondent, India McTaggart, and political analyst and former Ukrainian MP, Aliona Hilivko. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Thanks, David. The big news in the military sphere this morning is the apparent confirmation by a leading Ukrainian commander that the country is preparing for a fresh counter-offensive. This follows a statement by the Ukrainian military early this morning that over a 1,000 Russian troops have been killed over the previous 24 hours as they launched unsuccessful attacks on towns in Donetsk and Luhansk. Alexander Sersky, Ukraine's top ground forces commander, said his forces would soon begin a counteroffensive after withstanding Russia's winter campaign. I'll quote from him directly. Very soon, we will take advantage of this opportunity as we did in the past. And then he talked about Kharkiv and other counteroffensives last year. So they are making direct comparisons with those very prominent and successful counteroffenses. Now, of course, this doesn't come as a surprise. We've known a counteroffensive is planned for months now, but I think the timing of this is interesting. Evidently, it's designed to underline the resilience and determination of the Ukrainians at a sensitive diplomatic moment following Xi's visit and a growing anxiety that the war is entering a stalemate of sorts. That's something that some European capitals seem to believe, rightly or wrongly. It may also, of course, be a deliberate misinformation campaign of sorts designed to mislead the Russians as to their true intentions. It's a mystifying, misleading, surprising the enemy, uh, to paraphrase Sun Tzu. So it's an interesting story, but it may be relevant for the reasons that we don't necessarily think it's relevant for. In other developments, overnight, Russian missile strikes and shelling has killed at least seven civilians in northern and eastern Ukraine, according to regional officials. Emergency services said five civilians were killed in Kostyantonivka in the eastern region of Donetsk. And President Zelensky's office have said two were killed and seven wounded following intense shelling of Bilopilia in the northern region of Sumy. 
the emergency services in Kostyantonivka, which is about 15 miles, I believe, west of Bakhmut, published images this morning showing a one-storey building with its roof caved in, debris strewn about and rescue workers assessing the scene. And it seems that the attack was on one of the invincibility shelters. That's the term that's used. These are the shelters created by the authorities across Ukraine to provide access to electricity, heating, water and other basic services. So uh, naturally, as a consequence of this, the Ukrainians are saying that this is another war crime, an attack on a civilian target. So again, we'll be monitoring this closely. And the live blog is doing a lot of reporting on this. So I'd point listeners to that. We have another update from the British MOD this morning. One interesting snippet from that is that Russia has likely redeployed at least 1,000 troops who've been training at a camp in southwestern Belarus. It goes on to say that, and I quote, the fact that Russia has resorted to training its personnel under the much less experienced Belarusian army highlights how Russia's special military operation has severely dislocated the Russian military's training system. Russia likely also views Belarus's continued indirect support to the operation as important political messaging. And just to expand on that, Belarus's continued support is a continued concern for Ukraine militarily, as it means they have, as we've talked about before, protect their northern border for fear of another attempt on Kyiv from Belarus. But as the MOD briefing articulates, it also matters in the political context to having a, an ally geographically in that location and uh, an ally who's willing to support Putin publicly. Uh, And just finally, the last story I wanted to draw attention to in this military section is a report from Bloomberg yesterday. And they are saying that the head of the Wagner Group, Yegevni Bogosian, is to shift his attention from the war in Ukraine. That's according to sources familiar with the matter. And indeed, it seems that some of these sources are in the Kremlin and in Russian intelligence. According to these sources, Bogosian plans to turn his focus back to Africa, where his fighters are believed to have a presence in Sudan, the Central African Republic, Mali and other countries. So obviously this is news that will be welcomed by many. It's too early to say whether it's true, but if it is, Wagner have, of course, fought a ruthless campaign, which by the omission of Ukrainian soldiers on the ground that we've reported has not been entirely ineffective. But it's too early to say whether this is true. And obviously it will have huge ramifications potentially in these places in Africa where Russia sees its influence as vital and growing. But on the Ukrainian front, this, as I say, will be something that will be celebrated by many. And I think part of the reason behind it, if it is true, is this shift that we've seen, this discord between Putin, the Kremlin and the Wagner group over the issue of its military capability. Many seem to be under the belief that Wagner have overpromised and underdelivered and that it's come at a huge cost in material and in terms of these prisoners who've been sent to their deaths as soldiers. So an interesting story and I know we're planning on doing another deep dive into Wagner soon. I'm sure this will this will be something that we'll talk about in more detail in due course. Thank you, Francis. Francis, I'd ask you for the diplomatic updates from across Europe and the world. But I just want to bring in another one of our correspondents uh, who's on the ground for one of the stories we discussed yesterday. This is Prince William's unscheduled visit to Poland. And so we've got India McTaggart, royal correspondent at The Telegraph. India, you were with Prince William for this visit. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Where did you go and what did you see? Hi, David. Thank you for having me on, first of all. I was on this two-day surprise visit to Poland, and he first went to two military bases in, excuse my pronunciation, Chetov, which is 50 miles from the Poland-Ukraine border. He first went there to personally thank the British and Polish troops who are stationed there, and he said he was quoted as saying he thanks them for defending our shared freedoms. So clearly Kensington Palace was very keen to such sort of show support for the troops who are there responding to the ongoing humanitarian situation as a result of the war in Ukraine. While there, he said he was very struck by their passion as well as their shared determination to defend our freedoms, which is quite strong language. And he told them that everyone back home thoroughly supports them. He also added that the joint cooperation of of Britain and Poland in support of the people of Ukraine and their freedom has actually strengthened the ties between the two countries. So he also reiterated this in his meeting with the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, on Thursday. But actually, I think what the most important part 
of the trip was, especially for us that were there, was to see how determined the Prince of Wales was to shine a light on the plight of Ukrainian refugees who were forced to flee their homes at the start of the war. So I personally went to his third engagement on Wednesday, which was in Warsaw. On Wednesday evening, he went to tour the converted accommodation centre that's currently housing 300 Ukrainian refugees in the centre of Warsaw. And honestly, it was amazing to see because I was really struck by the reaction they had to him coming to show his support. It was mainly mothers and children who have all been living there for just over a year in this converted office building. And they were just all so overwhelmed by his presence just to see the future King of England. And many broke down in tears. Many were hugging him. And he really took the time to speak with them, to speak with the families there about their situation, how long they'd lived there, how their journeys from Ukraine were, where they were from exactly, within Ukraine, where the rest of their families were. He really just took the time. He took selfies with all the children. He played table tennis with some of the teenagers that were there. Just really made sure that he engaged with them. And though a lot of the conversation was done through a translator, it was honestly still really seamless because it just didn't take away from the impact and the importance it had on both sides. And you could just see that they were absolutely loving having him there. Sort of one woman in particular really struck us all. And actually, she was tweeted later on the Kensington Palace Twitter account. Um, She's called Natalia and he went to view her bedroom and she's been there since the start of the conflict. And she just was so excited to have him there. And it meant so much to her. She just told me after that she was so grateful to have his help, to have met him, that she was such a fan of the royal family. She's been following them for years and that the people of Ukraine in general were so grateful to him for showing his support. So I think overall I could say you you just honestly could really tell that this was an important trip for him personally. And this was a point that was also really emphasised to all of us that were there by the palace, that this was just a really personal drive for him, particularly to go and see the humanitarian side of the conflict for himself and to really get to grips with it, thank the generosity of the Polish people for welcoming their neighbours with open arms over the last year. And actually what was quite sweet was at the end of that tour of the accommodation centre, we were told that he'd actually made a personal donation of bicycles and scooters for the children there. So around half of the 300 people living there now are children um, and yeah so he made that personal donation which was just lovely to hear so I think that was a really moving one. Thank you very much for that account India as well as being a personal trip for the Prince of Wales it's also important to consider this and this is why we wanted to talk to you of course as a major diplomatic move by the United Kingdom and I just wondered what your thoughts were on that I mean we can maybe talk a little bit about the Russian reaction to seeing the Prince of Wales the future king of England talking to Ukrainian refugees visiting Warsaw how would you situate this in sort of more global geopolitics? Yeah, listen, it was definitely a show of of British soft power, a very significant one. And although the royal family obviously can't be directly involved with politics, this trip definitely shone a light on the monarchy's soft power working. And it just it really highlighted William's importance as a global statesman as well, I'd say. Obviously, his support and that of the royal family for Ukraine was well known before this trip. But I think nonetheless, it sort of really put him on a diplomatic charm offensive, like particularly the meeting with President Duda which we were told after was a very warm and friendly one um, with a discussion that centred mostly around Ukraine. But I think it was definitely highlighting their soft power and diplomacy. And I think um, he took the opportunity of that meeting to, to really just thank the president and the Polish people who have done so much to support the people of Ukraine and said that, you know, they also discussed how important it was to keep the support going. So it was it was a significant it was a significant show of power. And we were told that the prince also said he was very much looking forward to seeing the president and the first lady at the coronation, which was an interesting point because it makes him the first head of state to be confirmed as attending the king's coronation by the palace. So that's just a little bit of an aside. But yeah, overall, definitely a show of the monarchy's soft power without them directly getting involved with politics, I'd say. Thank you very much, India. Just a final question from me. King Charles also made some remarks pertaining to Ukraine. Could you just take us through them. And again, I think this is interesting. I think you're framing it really well of this isn't just a visit by, by the prince or the remarks by the king. This is, this is the soft power. This is geopolitics in action. Absolutely. And we can circle back to the Russia reaction. I realised I, I forgot to touch on that earlier. But yeah, the king yesterday 
also said that he was determined to visit Ukraine before he gets too old, which was another significant show of support from the monarch, who has actually recently hosted President Zelensky uh, at Buckingham Palace last month, as you covered. So he was opening the new European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in Canary. And within that, he said, I must go again before I get too old. I would like the chance to see Ukraine again. So for a bit of background, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development was established in 1991 at the end of the Cold War. It was built to open market economies and promote private enterprise in the former communist countries of Central and Eastern European, of Europe, sorry. But their work now focuses on the green economy and digitalization, and they've invested more than 160 billion in projects across three countries. But when the king was touring the building, he received this great big welcome from staff, and he was introduced to this charitable project being run by the staff called Kids and Art for Ukraine. And actually a really touching moment was when he was given this beautiful landscape picture painted by a young 16-year-old girl who was living around 120 kilometers from Kiev. And it was of the sort of idyllic rural scene that she sees from her bedroom window. And he was really, really touched with this gesture. And he actually asked to be given her address so he could personally write a thank you to her, which was very sweet. But again, it all, you know, sort of ties back into this monarchy having soft power and really trying to influence and shine a light on the plight of Ukrainian refugees and the situation there. But yeah, if you wanted to tie back into the Russian reaction yesterday, which is quite significant, I'm happy to do that as well. Yes, before we go to Francis for some further updates, very quickly, India, how did the Russians react to Prince William in Poland? So in brief, yesterday, we got a taste of their reaction to his Poland trip when one of their top diplomats, Maria Zakharova, used it to express Russia's concern about Britain's support of Ukraine in the war. So she's the spokeswoman of the Russian foreign ministry, and she used his trip to raise concerns about Britain's plans to supply Ukraine with depleted uranium shells for Challenger 2 tanks. So she said, I wonder if William Charlesovich has brought depleted uranium ammunition for his troops which is basically coining a patronymic for the Prince of Wales by using his father's first name. But she made the comments on Telegram on Thursday, which was obviously the second day of his trip, and she basically used the wording in a Tatler article that he personally thanked the Polish and British soldiers involved in the war to basically highlight that Britain was directly involved. She's sort of been this like outspoken mouthpiece of Russia's foreign policy since 2015. She's also quite well known for her pithy remarks and language, and she's often seen as sort of using more radical language than that of other senior Kremlin officials. But without sort of getting too technical about it, we got the idea from this reaction that the prince's visit to Poland really did shine a spotlight on the special relationship between the two NATO countries and something which that is something which Putin sees as quite hostile. And so we saw that with her comments on Telegram yesterday. Well, thank you very much, India McTaggart, for taking us through your visit with the Prince of Wales to Poland. I'd just like to come back to Francis quickly for a further update there. Thanks, David. Well, it's just so interesting hearing about the role of Poland. Of course, we've covered this in detail, some of articulating Poland as a new sort of military superpower in the European context. And this does, of course, speak to that, as we touched on yesterday. But also, I think it's important to weave in here that President Biden visited Poland also a few months ago in a, in a what was seen then as a deliberate show of support for Poland's approach to the war in Ukraine. So this has been a big year for them, no doubt about it. But in terms of other diplomatic updates, uh, Vladimir Zelensky has urged Europe to increase and speed up its supply of weapons and impose additional sanctions on Russia, warning that the war could otherwise drag on for years. And I'll read the quote from him. If Europe waits, the evil may have time to regroup and prepare for years of war. It is in your power to prevent this. And he's quite frustrated in the video, which is addressed to European Union leaders. It's been delivered from a train rather unusually. In particular, he reiterates demands for long-range missiles, ammunition, modern aircraft, and said that the EU needs to speed up the process of granting Ukrainian membership. I'm not surprised by any of this. Yesterday, I drew attention to the piece in the Washington Post talking about the delay in getting weapons to Ukraine. And earlier in the week, I spoke about the frustrations of the heads of NATO that some European countries are not pulling their weight in supporting Ukraine and boosting their defence spending. 
procurement, it seems, remains a core issue at this phase of the war. And I'm reminded of the interview Dom and I did with Edward Stringer, the former Director General of the Joint Force Development Strategic Command here in the UK, who spoke about the vital importance of strengthening supply chains in a long war. Now, rightly or wrongly, many feel not enough is being done to speed up these supply chains, and it's clearly vital. Although the fear is that it will be whatever happens now, if decisions are made now, it will be too late for the upcoming counteroffensive in the spring. In terms of other couple of diplomatic stories, I spoke yesterday about the ravings, frankly, of Dmitry Medvedev, former president of Russia. And he's spoken again this morning, this time saying that Russia are not planning to enter into a direct conflict with NATO and are interested in resolving the Ukraine crisis through talks. He went on to say that any Ukrainian attempt to take the Crimean Peninsula would be grounds for Russia to use absolutely any weapon against Kyiv in response. Now, I may be reading too much into this, but I do wonder whether the strength of his remarks yesterday threatening to launch missiles at the Bundestag and Olaf Scholz's office if they were to theoretically arrest Putin were he to visit has led to something of a rebuke from the Kremlin. Though his remarks around Crimea, of course, though nothing new, will still be of concern to those in the West who believe that the taking of Crimea by Ukraine would constitute some kind of red line for Russia and thereby lead to a possible nuclear escalation. But nonetheless, I thought quite an interesting story. Finally, I was quite struck by the remarks of Republican presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis, someone who, of course, we've spoken about quite a lot in the last week or so, who has described in a recent interview Putin as a war criminal who he said should be held accountable. His comments, I think it's fair to say, mark a a different tone to the one taken uh, a week earlier in a statement on Tucker Carlson, obviously the Fox News host. The governor said, and I'm quoting directly, while the US has many vital national interests becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. And in this latest interview, he's asked whether he stood by that comment. And he said, well, I think I've been mischaracterized. Obviously, Russia invaded. That was wrong. They invaded Crimea and took that in 2014. That was wrong. What I'm referring to is where the fighting is going on now, which is that eastern border region, Donbass, and then Crimea. There's a lot of ethnic Russians there. So that's some difficult fighting. And that's what I was referring to. I just don't think that sufficient interest for us is to escalate more involvement. I would not just not want to see American troops involved there. But the idea that I somehow think Russia was justified in invading, that's nonsense. And he went on to say that he thought that the conflict would end with that Putin would fail. And I do not think the Ukrainian government is going to be toppled by him. And I think that's a good thing. So the question now being asked is, does this constitute a climb down due to pressure from prominent Republicans and possibly the grassroots? Maybe, although some people will no doubt listening to this will be concerned about some of the caveats that he threw in there. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Roland Oliphant, can I come to you? You and Natalia Vasilieva have been writing up this story, We've been looking at the story on the uh, conditions and the experiences of Ukrainian children in what we can describe with, with you know, big, quite big quote marks, re-education camps. What did you find? Well, the hook for this story was on Wednesday, 17 children were brought who had been living in a Russian holiday camp in Crimea or returned to Kiev. It got quite a bit of play, I think, because it was organized by this charity called Save Ukraine. It's run by Mikola Kuleba. He's a former child's ombudsman, and they seem to have made sure there are a lot of cameras around. It's not the first time it's happened. It happens fairly regularly. But the point is, it's one little bit of a very, very picture. So so these kids, they're mostly teenagers. They were living in most of them are from Kherson region. There are a couple from Kharkiv region as well. They were living in occupied territory. Um, and then last summer or last autumn, local authorities, occupational authorities came around and said, look, we're organizing a summer camp for the kids down at Crimea. It's a place called Artek. Artek is an incredibly famous, storied old Soviet holiday camp. You know, any parent would say, sure, send my kids to Artek for, for a couple of weeks. The idea was it would be kind of a summer break for a couple of weeks. But then they never came back. Um, and the various excuses were given, you know, there's too much shelling, so on and so forth. The Her son was at this point, at least according to one of the parents, still under Russian control. So the idea that the line had changed here um, provided no excuse. Then Her son was liberated. There was no way back. Anyway, eventually, um, uh, Mr. Kaleber and his, um, his colleagues at this charity worked out a way to get the mothers, some of the parents, via third countries, 
from Ukraine into a third country, into Russia, down to Crimea to collect their children in person and then to get them back on a big, what he said was a, a big two-week journey. It took about a month to organize. Extremely tricky. Now, the thing is with this is that it's it's not an isolated incident. It's a pattern. So anyone who's listening to the podcast back in, or oh, it would have been about September, October time, just after the liberation of Kharkiv region and the Kharkiv counteroffensive, I was up in Kharkiv region, a place called Kozachalopan, up near the Russian border. And I was speaking to a family who had the, exactly this thing happen to them. So it's summer, the local school authorities who are basically working for the Russian occupation authorities at this point say, listen, there's going to be a camp. And that was at a place called uh, Medvizhonok, which is another famous holiday camp, this time in Krasnodar region in, in southern Russia. Sent their kid off, thought it would be a couple of weeks. In this case, there was a counteroffensive. The line did change and suddenly your kids are over in Russia. There's no obvious way to get them back. And the authorities at the camp were saying, well, 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 we're not going to send them back because we can't release the kids to third parties. It's got to be you, your parents, guardians to get there. Obviously, incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive. I know of at least one case of a woman who went by herself, went, I think, Ukraine, Poland, Belarus, Belarus, Russia, um, down to Medvizhonik in the present region, got her kids, and then they came back all the way through Crimea and up through, there's that one that one checkpoint that's open between um, Russian-controlled and Ukrainian-controlled territory just south of Zaporizhia, brought her kid back through their epic journey and then back home to, to, to Kharkiv region. So this is this is systemic. It's huge. The charity who brought the, these kids home on Wednesday say there's at least 61 still in Artek waiting to be brought home. And, and the question is, of course, well, why aren't the Russians letting these kids go home? In some cases, you know, if the line has moved, you can kind of understand it. But there was a study published by Yale University in February, and they said, no, this is, this is systemic. There's 43 of these camps that they identified where kids are being held. They said around 6,000 have passed through. So it doesn't mean there's 6,000 there now. And that there definitely seems to be an element of what we'd call, you know, re-education going on. So, you know, kind of being told you're Russian, you're not Ukrainian, Ukrainian is going to lose the war. One of the kids who came back on Wednesday actually gave an interview to um, Ukrainian television. He wasn't named. He's a teenager. He said, you know, that that any any of the kids who expressed kind of pro-Ukraine views were punished. One of the security officers said, we will take you to an orphanage and you'll sit there and you'll understand everything. And at one point he was told, oh, your mother's given you up and you're going to be adopted and you're going to live in Russia. And then he he called his mother and his mother talked to the camp minister. He said, no, I'm not. Um, And then she was told, oh, you're not going to come and get them. They're going to be children of Russia now and so on. So, I mean, this this, this is a big issue. The Ukrainians are obviously um, incredibly angry about it and have been making noises about this. And, of course, it it, it plays in. This is one of the reasons why Putin was indicted by the International Criminal Court. It was about child abduction and how that can violate at least one of the articles of the Geneva Convention. Thank you very much for that, Roland. Can I ask, Roland, this is obviously an agonizing story to hear to hear the experience of the children at these camps to to uh, for the parents to have to travel with, the, with all the worry that that would include what's it like talk i mean you mentioned your experiences when you were back in ukraine what's it like talking to the families who are going through this how it seems almost like one of the worst things to have to talk about to have to to, to not know if you're going to see your child again it's really difficult i mean the family who i was speaking to them in the end we didn't publish that story because that you know there are we have rules in this country about you know, children, publication of photographs, information. It was so, you know, the child wasn't there. It was all very, very complicated. So we decided basically for legal and ethical reasons not to publish that particular story. But the family, I mean, it was it was devastating really because they'd, they'd done what, really what any parent would do. Right? They were kind of quite close to the front line. A shell had landed on a neighboring street. And then the, you know, the principal of the school comes around and says, look, there's a we're doing a holiday camp. They're going to go down to Krasnodar. This is a part of Ukraine where, you know, cross-border travel to Russia and back and forth is completely normal before the war. So they're like, oh, fine, you know, why not? And then suddenly there's no way uh, to get your kid back. And at that point, it was it was even worse because although there were what, you know, you could, if you had a phone connection, you could call up this camp in, in, in Krasnodar and confirm that the child was there, which which we did. But um, at that point in Kozachalopan, there, there was no mobile phone coverage. All the communications were down. Everything was terrible. You kind of, so you not only do you not know where your child is, but you're kind of, your horizons have massively contracted because you, you can't use telephones, there's no internet, it's difficult to even move around because maybe you don't have a vehicle and there's no petrol. Um, so this sense of, of of great helplessness and as i said you know some point parents kind of going you know what i'm going to do it myself 
Um, and you know, I told you about this mother who made this incredible independent journey. And these charities, like like this charity Save Ukraine, who've started organising those journeys for parents to go and and get their kids. It's an incredibly, um, incredibly moving and and difficult thing. I mean, when you're doing journalism involving kids and kids suffering, that is one of the is one of the most difficult and I'd say unpleasant kind of parts of the job because you know you're you're dealing with something very very painful for for the people involved um and you've got to handle it with i think particular care thank you very much for that roland um aliona hilifko would it be possible to bring you in here i just wondered as to your reaction to roland's story there and maybe some of the other things we've talked about earlier on in this podcast Hi, David. Happy to be here. Um, it is extremely touching. I agree with Roland how Ukrainians are trying to realistically retrieve our children from Russia's hands. Um, it is very reassuring to see that international court has issued a warrant arrest to Putin for kidnapping our children. I think that's the very first crime and hopefully many more will be recognized in the future. Uh, that Russia will be held accountable for. I have personally heard from many acquaintances back home in Ukraine about these instances with children, and it is indeed a very sad story, the way the families get separated. But, you know, inevitably, we are in the course of war, and um, that's something that Ukraine has has to go through. Hopefully, every single child will be brought back home. And I know that there's uh, Kuleba as Roland rightly mentioned who is on it, our ombudsman for children. We know that the First Lady, Olena Zelenska, is very closely involved with the initiative of getting all the children back and, and everything that has to do with that. So I think a great effort is being put towards that, and we will certainly rebuild our nation, including get all of our children back. It's very. It was very reassuring to hear about the engagement of the royal family visiting our refugees in Poland, as well as King Charles mentioning Ukraine in his speech and being willing to go visit Ukraine. Hopefully when this war is over and we're up to a reconstruction and rebuilding Ukraine with the help of the UK and its enormous engagement, which I'm sure will happen. Um, hopefully we can bring one of the a royal family, maybe even King Charles, to, to come visit one of the openings of some great infrastructure projects that will be built in Ukraine, maybe even the whole cities and towns that will be rebuilt as a symbol of how the UK once really helped Ukraine to survive this war and then rebuild after it. Thank you, Eliana. Can I ask, there's been a few movements in the Ukrainian political sphere. Zelensky has uh, appointed a few new people and shuffled around a few of his, uh, a few of the other people in his cabinet. Can you talk us through who's in, who's out and what it might mean? Indeed. So it's quite fascinating that the whole world is watching very closely every single reshuffle in Ukrainian government. But I think that's also to be expected when the whole world has been involved in a very long protracted war. So the war is not just brutal and atrocious and has been going on for the whole year, but that also gives a a whole lot of space to go through basic state management and state administration, something that every country goes through. And it especially needs to be very diligent and careful and very well thought through at the time of war, make sure that everyone is in the right place and is helping keep the country running, keep everything together and make sure that all the industries that are inevitably affected by the war, that they're still running properly. So this time we've seen two major reshuffles. One is Minister of Education and another one is uh, Ministry for Strategic Industries. So the Minister for Education has been replaced by a new one, someone called Oksana Lusovay, who is chairman of the Junior Academy of Science. Serhish Karlid, the previous minister, has uh, resigned because there were many talks that the sitting committee in the parliament was growing unhappy with his activities. There are even some, some talks in uh, Ukrainian politics that the First Lady Olena Zelenska is quite closely engaged with everything that has to do with schools. She was engaged with that. That was her initiative as a first lady. Even before the war started, she was working on school meals and was quite closely involved with education. So she was interacting with him all the time. And perhaps she's seen all the mishaps in the education system. And of course, Ukrainian education system has faced many challenges since the war has started because 
children's education gets disrupted very often. Every day they need to run to bomb shelters. There's a whole new procedure in place. Everything has to be foreseen for any emergencies. So it is the industry is quite heavily affected by the war and perhaps it just needed some fresh blood and reinvigoration by the new minister. Now, the new incoming um, minister is quite an interesting person, Oksana Lusovey. He is born and raised in Kiev. His parents were dissidents, and in fact, his father was imprisoned by the Soviet state when Oksana was born for helping out uh, the dissidents called Shestevisatikis, so the dissidents of the 60s, basically the one who spoke out against as Soviet Union and calling for Ukraine's independence. So he is quite pro-democracy, independent Ukraine. He is very ideological. Uh, he is a soldier himself, interestingly enough, fighting on the front line up until he was appointed a minister, a teacher by profession. So I am very excited to see how the educational system of Ukraine will change under his management. The second interesting appointment is the CEO of Ukrzelizneitsa, a state-owned railway company who I'm sure we've all heard of by now, which became kind of legend in its own right. The CEO of that company has been appointed a minister for strategic industries. Now, there are many talks in Ukraine um, about the need of this ministry and what are its direct functions and perhaps it should be reintegrated with the Ministry for Economic Development, for example, because basically it's someone duplicates uh, Ministry of Economic Development just because it runs industries. I mean, it does exactly just that. So not many people are quite sure why this new bureaucratic um, construction is needed in Ukrainian government. I personally have a feeling that this ministry will be growing in its importance and will be getting quite significant as the war moves towards its end and Ukraine goes towards reconstruction. Because somehow I have a feeling, especially looking at Alexander Kamushin, who's the former Ukrzaliznitsa CEO, his profile um, got elevated quite quickly, even internationally. Uh, he's become quite popular very quickly due to his trains that are running on time, some brilliant marketing with transporting all the global leaders from the Polish border to Kiev. I think they've capitalized on that quite smartly. And so I have a feeling that President Zelensky might be relying on him to be the leader of this new ministry for strategic industries. And as we move towards reconstruction, this ministry could be the main establishment within the government to go to for anything on reconstruction, because it will have to do uh, with infrastructure, with energy industry, solar, perhaps even color other areas. So I think there is definitely something interesting going on with that. The Minister for Digital Transformation, Fedorov, I think his mandate is also growing. He is expanding his influence and his authority in the government too. Uh, we have seen that Ukraine's digital effort has been quite successful as the new digital trade agreement was signed in London just this last week as well, helping secure some new cooperation and engagement with the UK. Previously, there was an agreement signed with the US, I think late last year about the cooperation in digital sphere. And now I believe uh, that the Ministry of Digital Transformation has gotten a new extended mandate and will also cover some educational aspects. So that minister is definitely staying. Another minister that is staying is Minister of Defense, Alexei Reznikov, even after some of the scandals that shook the ministry um, in the last few months. The level of trust of Ukrainians is still quite high towards him. There are some investigations that are ongoing with his deputies and chief of departments, but he is certainly staying and continuing the war effort. I believe that President Zelensky might have also kept him because he's built quite good, strong relationships with his counterparts abroad. And it's essential for the continuity, especially with all the Western weapons that are being sent to Ukraine now, that he stays in place exactly where he is. Well, thank you very much, Aliona, for talking us through all of those changes. I think it was really fascinating to hear your thoughts on what that might mean for the future and for the future of Zelensky's government. Can I just ask, before I hand over to any questions from 
Roland and Francis. J- just your thoughts on the general mood at the moment from what you're hearing from your Ukrainian sources. I mean, asking partly because we did a long interview with journalist Francis Farrell from the Kiev Independent, who was um, devastatingly honest, I'd say, about some of the things he'd been told by Ukrainian soldiers and, and civilians on, on the mood of the nation after more than a year of the full-scale invasion. I just wondered if you had thoughts on that. Yes, David. The mood in Ukraine remains, I would say, complex. On one hand, people are definitely determined to see their own victory, to see Ukraine win the war. And the uh, the word victory sounds prominently in their answers. And they correlate their own future and predictability of the future directly with the victory. So we even see some results showing that people will determine whether they will stay in the country, what their profession will be, how successful they will be, whether they keep their families in the country, depending on Ukraine's victory. So that's one very important thing for even the Western leaders to understand. That's why we keep saying this phrase, Ukraine must win, because if there is some sort of agreement that doesn't really sit well with the population, Um, If we go towards concessions, I don't think that any kind of Minsk agreements is on the table anymore. But say that if Ukraine was forced into negotiations and concessions that would not include territorial integrity and sovereignty and the borders of 1991, then that would disrupt the mood of Ukrainians completely. And we would see another refugee crisis that Western companies countries would have to brace. Now, when it comes generally towards um, attitudes to the authorities, trust for politicians, first of all, sociologists of Ukraine made a pact when the war has started that they would not be doing political polling. So there is no percentages of support on elections, etc., because it's unacceptable and simply unethical for Ukrainians now to even think about politics. But they continued measuring the level of support for certain institutions and government officials. And the Ukrainian army has now got 98% of Ukrainians' trust, which is fascinating. So people are fully behind the armed forces. They are trusting them to, again, get the victory that everyone is expecting. And there is almost 100% trust there. Similarly, government officials, even though the number is slightly lower, it's slightly over 50% trust. That is still quite unheard of for Ukrainians to have that level of trust to government institutions. I don't know what the level is here in the West, but in Ukraine, uh, the population normally would be completely opposed towards any institutions and would always be extremely suspicious of all the government institutions, especially um, police force, courts, prosecutor's office. It's unprecedented that those government bodies have 20% of Ukraine's Ukrainians' trust, whereas before it was around 2%, never more than that. So it's fascinating that the Ukrainians are still quite united behind the leadership. They're backing them almost fully, one could say, and trust them with their future. Um, one very interesting point that came out of this polling, just uh, the last thing, is the way people self-identify. So when asked the question by um, Center Rozumkov, Center of Rozumkov is the polling institution here, they asked Ukrainians, how do you identify? And uh, the number one answer that came up of those, that question was as a Ukrainian. So before sex, religion, gender, profession, you know, coming from the east of Ukraine or the west of Ukraine or different regions or belonging to different industries, people came up with the first answer that they were a Ukrainian. So it definitely shows this unity within the nation, the national idea and the togetherness that hopefully will bring us victory. Thank you very much for that, Aliona. May I ask Roland or Francis, do you have any questions for Aliona? Hi, Aliona. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Of course, in the past, we've covered a lot about Zelensky's initiatives with regard to tackling corruption in the country. And I just wonder whether there's been any more developments in that space, something perhaps we haven't maybe covered as much recently, if there have been. Hi, Francis. Nice nice to hear you too. There were no major scandals in the last few months in Ukraine. I think the investigation, as I've said, within the Ministry of Defence is ongoing um no one really gets to comment on that a before there are any results out of those investigations b not to give 
any more food for Russian propaganda to dwell on. So that's being kept quiet, but definitely investigated within the country. I hear a lot of dialogues happening within the policymaking community of Ukraine, part of whom were in London this week as a part of signing the UK Ukraine digital trade agreement and talking about reconstruction of Ukraine. There are many meetings behind closed doors. Everyone is talking about this corruption. The Western authorities are definitely not worried, but they're interested and they keep the tabs open. They keep asking those questions. So I think as the war goes on, and obviously as we're fighting this war, which is not an easy thing to do, I think Ukraine is definitely going through that process of making things more transparent and reshuffling many people, even within the anti-corruption bodies of Ukraine. So I think eventually we will hear more. But perhaps even after the martial law is lifted, we will know everything that's been going on and everyone who's been punished. Well, thank you, Francis, for the question. Thank you, Aliona, for the answer. I think we're starting to run out of time, unfortunately. All right, we'll go to our final thoughts. Francis, would you like to go first? Thanks, David. Just one thought I had off the back of Roland's reporting on this issue of children is, of course, that those are the children who have advocates, who have parents who are able to go and try and bring them back. But what about those children who are orphans, those who don't have people who are in a position to go and find them to fight on their behalf? It must be an immeasurably difficult time for them. And we just have to hope that one day there will be initiatives in place that will enable those individuals as well to be brought back and to be helped in the way that they deserve. And people will say, how on earth was this allowed to happen in the 21st century? How was it conceivable that you can have these kind of state-mandated programmes and people not being up in arms about it and not knowing about it? And so I just do... The more one reads, the more shocking it becomes. And I do think that it will be a defining characteristic of future understandings of this war and future interpretations of Western actions or inactions as a consequence. Thank you, Francis. Roland Oliphant, can I go to you? Just on on the children thing, there was one very, very tiny bit of small common humanity that I came across in in this story, which was, so there's an absolutely hawkish Russian tabloid journalist called Alexander Kotz, who is um, anyone who follows this war, follows Russian media will know him. Now, he says that he was involved in one of the evacuations of, he would call it an evacuation of children from occupied Kharkiv Oblast to Medvizhorn at that camp in Krasnodar. Um over summer that I reported on. And back in October, he reported that a bunch of Ukrainian mothers had made it over to pick up their kids and that he was very sad about it. And the way he put it was that, you know, none of these kids wanted to leave. You know, they know that Russia is lovely and so on and why they're going back there. But the way, you know, he couched it, oh, we're going to let them go back because it's Russian soft power and they'll show, they'll know that Russia was really nice to them and so on. Of course, he's going to put it that way. But he also said it was quite clear to us that you can't, you know, parents have shown up, you can't say no, you can't have your kid, which, you know, setting everything else aside, as long as there are people, so there's a tiny, tiny little bead of basic decency somewhere underneath all of it, you know, thank God, at least these kids are getting back. And at least when the, when parents do make that arduous journey there, you know, and say, look, I want my kid, they're getting their kids. So I'm trying to look on the bright side slightly. On the other other things. We were talking earlier about Medvedev's kind of weird comments about Crimea and how the war ends and things like that. Anthony Blinken was in front of Congress yesterday and he was asked, does the United States back Vladimir Zelensky's goal of liberating Crimea? Uh, he was asked that by a Republican representative who said, look, frankly, I'm worried about that because I think we might be in for, the word he used was a world of hurt. And Anthony Blinken said, I think there's going to be territory that the Ukrainians are going to want to fight for now on the ground and there's there may be territory where they'll decide they need to use other means to try and get it back by which he seemed to be saying negotiation and that is going to be widely seen as kind of underscoring this perceived gap between Ukraine and some of its western allies about where this war ends because the Ukrainians are absolutely clear as we've said again and again and again about getting getting Crimea back that is one of the central uh, the the end of objective of this war is 1991 borders that means getting Crimea back there is obviously some kind of unease amongst western governments about whether that should involve fighting or and at the moment it's on the back burner because you know the prospects of active you know ground operations in Crimea are still quite a way off but eventually it is going to come up and then there are going to be 
you know, quite stern debates, I would imagine, between Kiev and its Western backers about what happens here, because the Ukrainians are quite convinced. And to be fair, some people in the West, and Lieutenant General Ben Hodges has talked about this, they think the way to end this war is to take Crimea. And other people will be listening to that threat that Dmitry Medvedev made that Francis mentioned. So, yeah, bottom line, that, that is something we'll be returning to in future. Thank you very much, Roland and Francis. Eleanor, would you like the very final thoughts? Thank you, David. Francis started uh, this podcast today by saying that new Ukrainian liberation campaign is underway. And uh, we do have a good feeling that in April it will definitely start. That Ukraine, with all the incoming weapons from the West, will finally start liberating some more territories. We've been holding Donbass quite firmly. And we've proven yet again that not the Wagnerites or the unprofessional Russian army can withstand Ukrainian soldiers. Given with Western weapons, I've seen that the Gepards, the anti-aircraft weapons, are on the ground in Ukraine. We are expecting all the tanks to come in and then hopefully get some fighter jets. And we need to end this war this year because next year can be very unpredictable in terms of geopolitics for Ukraine. Now, with that being said, I can already see a lot of movements in Ukrainian governments within the officials starting very concrete and productive work on reconstruction negotiations. As I've said, there were several meetings, both public and private ones in Westminster today with many Ukrainian officials. We have seen the National Security and Defense Council announce in Ukraine announced that they have started working on the post-war strategy for Ukraine. So I think in the lead up to the reconstruction conference in June that the UK government is organizing here in London. There will be a lot of negotiations and movements and plans to actually start thinking about reconstructing Ukraine once we get this war over by the end, hopefully by the end of this autumn. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. <laughs>